Here we go. We're rolling on episode 31. Unbelievable. Have we done that many? Yeah. Can you believe it? Well, big thanks to everyone who sent us an email. Rest assured, we're reading every single one of them and subsequently feeling guilty about not being able to write everyone back. <laughs> I feel especially bad. But yeah. we do we do read them. Each which one. we do. And you know what? We get a quiet moment here and there, which neither one of us has a whole lot of. <laughs> but when we do, we try to go back through and send responses to the ones that we can. We want to provide a quality answer, and that does take a little bit of time because it's. I consider it writing, yeah. and I and I'm putting it out there. Forrest uh, is a man of letters. Oh, and there you go. That's my. Uh, I thought it's on my resume. Yeah, misspelled. But my point is, is that you <laughs> were kind enough to take the time to write us, and especially if you have a question that requires a little bit of research, I want to answer it correctly. Right. If, if you're looking for other places to interact with us, remember you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Google Plus, Tumblr, YouTube, with our own channel now. That's right. Yeah, and of course our website astonishinglegends.com yeah and we're not doing periscope so forget it (laughs) okay our youtube channel is a platform for listener submitted content inspired by the show so reach out to us at astonishinglegends at gmail.com if you're interested because we're looking for contributors uh, this is an open call. That's right. That's what we used to call it in uh, film festivals. Huh? That's right. Anybody. Also, take a second to actually visit our website because it is loaded with research links, images, and show notes for each episode that we work really hard on putting together whenever we post a new show. You can go over there and quickly disappear down the rabbit hole of your choice. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight we're going to take a break from the way back and move up to the not-so-way-back of the 1980s, one of my favorite decades, and a possible plot to control the minds of our nation's children through arcade video games. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The obvious objective of video games is to entertain people by surprising them with new experiences. Miyamoto Shigeru the father of modern video games and co-creator of The Legend of Zelda, Donkey Kong, Super Mario Brothers, and many more. Join us tonight as we take a trip back to the 80s and a time when coin-operated video games ruled kids' lives. Okay, uh, first things first, I actually hadn't heard about this until you brought it to my attention. Unbelievable. Yeah. Because you own a couple, well, you owned a couple of arcade stand-up games. I have, over the years, I had two Tempests, and right. I had a Frogger cocktail table. With, <laughs> did it have the, the the cigarette burns on the edge? No. <laughs> I wouldn't have bought one like that right. in that condition. Just, I hunted very hard right. for these right. games, and I was very scrupulous about yes, you what are. cabinets I purchased. You are about yeah. everything. But I must say, <laughs> kids, if you're, you know, you're listening to this, and you don't know what we're talking about, you had to go to a place to play decent video games. And I had a, I had a really cool uh, a Sears Atari kind of a game, and, and uh, it, that was real simple, uh, blocky graphics. But to play the cool ones, you had to go to an arcade and you had to spend quarters. Yeah. Okay. Which, and it was fun. There was lots of other kids there. There was a lot of noise. There was. It's like it's like the kid version of going to Vegas. You know, when is, you're in a casino and you hear all those sounds. Yeah. You just like it's so exciting. You weren't supposed to win anything. Now we'll get to that later because that's parts of, that's part of the story here. Maybe winning something. Yeah. But I have to give credit to you, my friend, because uh, you actually suggested something. You you sent me a link. Yeah. And it was a link to kind of a cool 
uh, ironic t-shirt site. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, do you remember what it was called? Uh, no, I don't. It's something Amorphia, something. It was... It okay. was well, we'll have the, we'll have the I remember link. the overriding theme was teach the controversy. And it was, <laughs> well, it was all just making fun of pseudoscience, it's honestly. All, yeah, really, and just a lot of the stuff we talk about. But, yeah. <laughs> but And we'll have the link on the site, of course. Uh, but it was called controversy.amorphia-apparel.com. And what it is, it's a bunch of, uh, you know, it's the kind of that um, uh, flat graphics, and they're kind of funny and sarcastic drawn out, but it's a lot of uh, controversial subjects being talked about, and some paranormal stuff, and some... Yeah, I remember there was one about yeah. the flat Earth, and, it, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and then it's, a, it's got a picture of a flat planet with, like, it's dripping off the side, and it yeah, says, of course. says, teach the controversy <laughs> yeah. on it. Or... And a guy plowing his field with a triceratops. Yeah, you know, nice. Fu- you know, yes, yeah, so, so funny stuff like that. But I came across one image, and I, I, I knew most of, I would say most all of what the images were talking about, except for one, really had to jog my memory because it's a, an intriguing image. It's kind of like a, a robot head or a Greek statue head, and the eyes are cast upwards, and there are uh, polygons or uh, uh, bits <laughs> coming out of the eyes, colorful ones. It's like, what the heck is that about? And it just had the word under it, Polybius. Polybius. Like, and, and, you know, it was real vague. It was way in the back of my memory, and I had to, I had to look it up. And then, I, and then I explained it to you, and you just said, we got to do we this. We got to do this yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So here we go. Polybius. Okay. He was a Greek historian of the Hellenistic period, noted for his work, The Histories, which covered the period of 264 B.C. to 146 B.C. in great detail. Wait a second. You wrote that down, first of all. Yeah, that's not, I Okay. That's not – thanks. I, I, it, <laughs> I was very impressed. I'm still impressed. <laughs> Uh, but no, I actually it, took it straight off of Wikipedia, which we don't do that often. <laughs> no. Actually, we never do that. Right. But, well, it's not that Polybius directly. I mean, that it is was the him. Name. It was named for him, right? There's yes. not a lot of Polybius. Is a, the, po- poly- Polybii. Polybii. <laughs> no, not, wow, we got it yeah, at the same Very time. good. Nice. No, no. I, I, I know what you're saying, though. It's And we'll talk about this as part of the reasoning for this story towards our conclusions, because it's an odd name for a game. Yes. But it is the, it is the one guy. He was the Greek historian. And yes, he wrote, uh, I think it's a 14 or 20 volume. 40. Mostly, it was 40. 40 that's right. 40 volume, but only five or six of them survived. Right. Most of them have been lost, but he was a very influential guy at the time, and he was written about. That's how we By know a way, lot about him. I, I have written 60 books, and uh, but unfortunately, they're all, they've all been lost. <laughs> So now it's 1981, and we're up in your neck of the woods, Portland, Oregon, in a, yeah. in a video arcade that is actually still around today as a noted popular jazz and blues bar called the oh, Blue Diamond. Right. By the way, I know we have listeners in Portland because some of them are my friends. Do not go to the Blue Diamond <laughs> and ask them about this because they don't no. know anything about it. It was renovated in the 90s. It's not the same owners, whatever, but it's just uh, it still has the same name, I guess. Right. But do go there for blues, for, for jazz and blues. Yeah, it's, a, but, it's yeah. one of the best venues on the West Coast, according to its website. Anyway, so. but they're not going to know They're not going to know about Polybius no. or they're really tired of people asking. So. No. And a few <laughs> weeks a ago, idea. we didn't know about Polybius. All right. But a lot of yeah. people do. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. So uh, at 1981. So, exactly. Polybius. There we go. The video game, the cabinet, the arcade game. And if you don't know what a coin-operated video game is, if you're too young to remember them, although I feel like everyone should probably know. I mean, if you've been to a bowling alley, they're still there. Yeah, that's true. They, um, right. the, it's a big cabinet with a screen in it, and sometimes you sit down in a chair. But back then, you mostly stood in front of it, had a joystick or a ball or some other kind of controller, and you dropped quarters in it trying desperately to beat your high score or someone else's until you didn't have any money left and your parents had to sell their house. Exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, getting good at it required some dough and a lot of time. Yes. Now, I had a really cool uh, Sears Atari game that played with the cartridges, and that was a lot of fun. But to get the really high-end graphics... Uh, you had to go to the arcade. Plus, you know, it was a social hangout place. Yeah. You didn't have any, you know, you didn't have, uh, as a kid, like you, you said before, it's like Vegas for kids. Yeah. You go there. There are adults there smoking because people did that back yeah. then. Yeah. It was, you know, but it was kind of a sanctioned, a uh, fun place for kids after school to hang out. So at the Blue Diamond in Oregon, supposedly, so at some point, these guys came and they dropped off a new game system. Now, you have to remember, we're, very, we're pretty close to the birth of upright video game cabinets. In fact, Pong... Atari brought out Pong in 1979. We're talking about wow. two or three years after yeah. that. So uh, you could play a home version of Pong. I remember that I played later, I think in the 80s, but on your TV. But the stand-up cabinet, which we have a picture of it on the site with this posting, was 79. So this is pretty early on. Yeah. And what they're saying is that this game was brought into this arcade and set up. You know, it was probably put into what they call a tracked mode. And I know about this because, like I said, I used to have some games. You flip some – what you do is you open up the back and it's got – what what they call a ROM. ROM stands for read only memory, which yeah, is yeah. um it's a big <clears throat> simple computer. Yeah, you know. exactly. Right. And it's a card. And right. when when you think about a modern game, if anyone who's old enough to remember your Nintendo sixty four, your Sega, or even your three uh, DS or anything that you put a cartridge in, inside the cartridge is a little tiny green silicone card. Yeah. And PC it, board. Yeah, yeah. That has the game program on it. And it's it's what's called a non volatile memory. It's not it's not going to get erased. You can't write over it. You can make changes, and it's but it's very difficult. But those little tiny cards that are in your 3DS cartridges or your Nintendo 64, if you want to go back, or Atari or Intellivision or whatever, those little tiny cards used to be great big cards that were like one foot by two feet, and yeah. those were the cards that were in the back of these games. Right. Well, but the purpose is is that they're there to make money. They're, like you said, it's an yes. attract mode. It's it's beckoning kids. Beckoning Come on kids over. over to play yeah. me. And right. supposedly, Polybius had a very magical feature. And especially in this early stage of video games, according to the accounts, it could play simultaneously vector graphics and raster graphics. Um, not to get too technical about that, but I'm going to get a little bit technical about it. If you don't understand what vector graphics are and raster graphics, the difference in vector graphics are basically straight lines. All you can see is a straight line on the screen. And older games that had this were Battlezone. There was a Star Trek game and uh, a- Asteroids. <coughs> Asteroids, yeah. exactly. And uh, Tempest, my yeah, right. the one that I had, which was a blast to play. I thought of a, a, an easy explanation because it's a little dense, but it really goes into maybe proving or disproving one of the major elements of this story. Think about vector graphics because this is how the uh, the monitor is set up. It's an electron beam being shot at the screen from on the other side, <laughs> not at your right, face. Right. But it's kind of like a, a laser light show. You know how those yes. work where you have a laser beam exactly. and it's drawing images very rapidly. That's yes. kind of the idea. And it's like the old oscilloscope or EKG monitor. Goes, exactly the boop, same. Boop. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a specific screen. That is not the same thing as the raster graphics right. screen. And that's important. But we're right. going to come back to that okay. later. But this game supposedly had both of those. And a raster screen is a more traditional sort of screen that you would come to expect from Pac-Man or in these other games that are full color and basically just on a TV. You're looking at a TV yeah. with graphics on it. Made up of pixels. Right. And, and they're basically squares. That's why if you blow up an image, and I'm sure everyone here knows that you, you try and take like a, a, take a little smiley icon. You blow that up and it gets real fuzzy. It's stair-stepped. It's yes. aliased. Yes. Because the math, unlike vector graphics, is not complete the image to different sizes. So you blow it up, well, you now just have big squares. Yeah. 
Exactly. Uh, and that's, but that's how the color is, is translated, is that the squares have color values, whereas the vector uh, graphics, I believe, are monochrome, but they put color overlay yes. over the screen. That's, what, that's how you get the different fantastical colors. But most yes. of them are like asteroids. It's just kind of that blue-gray yeah. you know, color. But they were cool at the time. Yes, because and we super hadn't fun. Seen, yeah, exactly. We and you felt like you like were that. playing something super high-tech. Oh, so no. You, you can yeah. imagine the attitude when these kids come in and see this game that has apparently both of these styles of graphics. And so they start playing the game. Right. Rumor has it. And they're playing it really rapidly. They're getting more addicted to it than usual. There's long lines to oh, play it. Lines. Some people say there's lines, there's fighting. Yep. But but unfortunately, there's some side effects. Well, like I will say with any video game, if you play it for 36 hours straight, it affects a lot of people. You, you know, because we would sit there and do the same thing. Uh, but this game in particular, Polybius, was especially nefarious. Yeah. It was, diabolically. In addition to the fighting, it was causing nausea, dizziness. Some people were apparently walking away from it, saying they never wanted to play a video game again. Other people had suicidal tendencies, and supposedly some people actually killed themselves after they played it. yeah. Horrible things when you got home. I mean, you were just kind of tired after playing it for a long time, but when you got home, that's when the bad stuff happened. Night terrors, uh, waking up screaming, all kinds of bad stuff associated with playing this game. And that's the other odd thing is that Unlike other video games, which are addictive, there were reports that you stopped being interested in video games, which I find interesting in itself. Yeah, I don't under and I don't understand. First, there's a line, and now you're not interested in them anymore. But <laughs> yeah, the, all of these things were supposedly going on around this, and eventually it came to such a head that the game was removed from the arcade. And yeah, oh, and but, we forgot but, to point out yeah. the, by the guys that removed it had yeah. been visiting it all along. There's a couple of guys in black suits. Now, we're, it sounds a lot like Men in Black. No one is really saying that they're the technical Men in Black that you hear of in UFO. And, well, it's not like that because those guys are, are really creepy to look at. This is more like you're, you're uh, a imagine, human being. Yeah, imagine uh, Tommy Lee Jones yeah. coming in with a suit. <laughs> guys like that. The only thing that was weird is that they're not talking to anybody and they're not explaining themselves. But what people reported was that they'd open up the back of the machine, not say a word to anybody. It looked like they were removing something or exchanging cartridges. Right. Taking cards out or yeah. extracting data or something. Then they'd close it back up and leave. And leave. And this happened just periodically. Until eventually, so much had gone wrong with the game, they came and actually wheeled it out. They yeah. took it away. And we had read a few reports that indicated that after they unplugged it and were rolling it out of the arcade, people could see that it was still on. Yeah, I saw that too. Weird, weird stuff going on. Yeah. Which, of course, that look, it's, it's kids of that era. That was the golden age of urban legends. And we certainly had some as a kid. I was asking Scott earlier. Mine at the time, one of the bigger ones was there were spider eggs in the bubble yum, bubble oh, gum. Yeah, right. So don't eat it, kids. That didn't stop us really. But, yeah. but that was, it was just a fun bubble thing. Yum is good stuff. You can't get that anymore, can you? Yeah, yes, I believe so. Yeah, not at the grocery store. I feel like it's in novelty oh, candy no, no, no. shops. No, 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 not the, it's not blackjack gum. That's now you're going back a couple of generations. Yeah. A uh, case in point, though, is that a little story gets told. People see something that's unexplainable or strange, and then it just takes off from there. Just to paint a picture of the zeitgeist of the time, <laughs> you know, everybody, all the kids yeah. were going to arcades. And like yeah. I said, good things and bad things were happening in arcades. There were certainly drug deals going down and that kind of stuff that kids yeah. do. You know, yeah. you don't have legal access well, to anything at that point. It's it's somebody's older and brother by the way, this have is, a job, yeah. you know, hanging out, and yeah. he's like probably dealing weed on the side. Exactly. You know? And also, this is pre-internet kids. There is not a whole lot of fun things to look at on the internet, like you're... <laughs> 
average ten year old can do now. You had to now. go home yeah. and uh, and watch your three channels. <clears throat> yeah. Or and if you, you wanted could, to uh, look, if you wanted yeah. to look at dirty pictures, you had to like uh, man up and go into the Seven Eleven and <laughs> yeah, that's that same to... older brother, yeah. the ne'er do well, to go <laughs> go buy one. Or if you were lucky, you saw a mashed uh, page on the side of the road. Yeah, been in driven a gutter. Over. But the, the but what. Uh, <laughs> But the picture we're painting here is that it's a mass hangout. There's lots of kids. There's activity every day. Yeah. When I was in junior high, they put a pizza parlor next to the junior high. Right. And it had a bunch of video games in it. And and a kid can afford a slice of pizza. And he's going to spend most of the money on the video game. It's a brilliant idea for the pizza, yeah, except for they, the arcade owner. Yeah, they trashed it. It <laughs> <That laughs> lasted yeah. a couple of years. Yeah. But that's, no, I what I'm saying is everybody hung out there. And you went with your cliques of friends and you talked about stuff. So when something strange like that seems to be happening, there's going to be talk about it. Yeah, word word gets around. And so the, the story is, and this story is all over the web. If you look up Polybius, you're going to find countless retellings of this story, of this yeah. game that appeared very briefly in these arcades, more than one. We mentioned the Blue Diamond, but they said it was a couple of arcades. And, in, and mostly it's in Portland. But some people are like, oh, no, it was also in Iowa or something like that. Yeah, but- you and do it. There's Right. There's, I remember a couple of arcades in the Midwest, possibly, but Portland is the That's center of it. Exactly. And I got to tell you, in 1981, it was a much smaller town than it is now. It was not Seattle Junior. It was much sleepier, so there's less for kids to do. And by the way, it makes sense. Any new game, it gets market tested. And Portland had the demographics for it. It's kind of like our friend Travis was telling us, uh, San Antonio, hotbed yeah. of new restaurant trying. Try. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, so exactly. it's like so some company comes out, they want to make a new chain that they're going to put all over the country. The very first Applebee's or whatever, they pop it in San Antonio and see how it does. But Port- it's, it's perfectly reasonable to think that Portland was a good test market for video games. It's interesting you say that because my dad was advertising for a long time. And we used to get a lot of samples in the mail in Spokane. And, he, and, you know, as a kid, he's like, you, you know why that is, right? He said, well, no, it's because Spokane, Washington, and, and cities like that, Portland's about, uh, I can't remember which one was bigger at the time, about the same size maybe, but it's middle America in a sense. It's not uh, extreme, so it's not uh, way up in Maine. It's not the deep south. It's uh, California is its own thing. So it's kind of like across the board. Portland is a good middle-of-the-road test market. Yeah. Well, so there you go. So the question now becomes... What was really going on with this game? Because after it was removed, it took on a life of its own. The story began to get even more pronounced. This, these postings turned up. There was not a lot of activity going on on the internet back then. I mean, the Usenet groups, I'm not sure when they started. Yeah. Not too long after that, those were message boards and that sort of thing. And there is some mention of it taking its initial seed there. And we did not dig into Usenet archives, and but there's not a lot of indication that there's anything about Polybius in the Usenet archives. No, and I, and I will go off this. Uh, there's been other people, of course, that have written articles and researched it, and they could not find anything either. Right. Okay. So then everything goes back to this posting on August 3rd, 1998 at coinop.org. And this is really... This is quite a message here. It's, it was posted by a guy known as Cyber Yogi. Suddenly, we received a request to create a game which was very odd. This would have been ignored, but the source was supposedly a secret organization called Sinis Loschkin. I'm not sure how I'm saying that right. It's German. I'm, I know that I'm not saying ah, it right. I've been practicing this. Okay. Sinis Loschen. Loschen. Sinis Loschen. How's that? I don't know. Put the lotion the in the basket? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Sinis Loschen. Operating with some sort of governmental power. I am still not sure to this day what country they were working for. 
we were given a project sheet and a map of the human brain and how to stimulate those areas, and we were told to integrate them into a video game. Sega had quite a bit of money riding on this deal, and we were not doing so well. The game took quite a bit of time, and we created technologies that were far beyond our time. A member of the group suggested the name Polybius, which I remember being the name... I'm reading this exactly as it's written, by the way. That's important. It'll come up in a minute. Which I remember being the name of a scholar of some sort. The game's genre could be puzzler, but it also had some odd elements. This game is real. That's in all caps, by the way. The game testers who worked for us had odd mind problems. That's supposed to be problems. Like losing memory and other such things, like loss of arcade game fandom. I cannot remember what we designed the arcade case to look like because it was done by another group. After the project, we signed papers promising secrecy, and if I am discovered, I may get in serious trouble. However, I believe that this needs to be known. At the beginning of this page, I mentioned the Sega Genesis CD. I was involved in several projects after Polybius, and eventually I ended up on the Sega Genesis CD team. While we were designing this, an issue came up. I cannot remember the details, but it involved the two processors syncing up. It turns out that Polybius was discovered to use two processors, working in a way similar to what we wanted for the Sega Genesis CD. We were afraid of getting in trouble for using that game's code, but we altered the game's BIOS anyway. However, most of the code that activated the mind-altering system, details classified in parentheses, were in that BIOS. The actual game ROM needs the BIOS to run. It was very much like a modern console in that manner. The point is that I believe we left quite a bit of the legacy code of Polybius in the Sega Genesis CD, at least in the earliest revisions. However, I was laid off shortly after, and though it was for misconduct, I practiced no such thing, and I believe it was because I accessed Polybius's files. They were likely deleted from Sega's system afterwards. I have heard rumors of an arcade ROM floating around on the internet, but cannot find it. If I ever do find the ROM, I will start researching it, and hopefully will be able to find a way to get it to run. That is, if I am not caught. Ah, the elements of a good story seeded by Cyber Yogi. Cyber Yogi, yes. I want to come back to him in a second. Yeah. Well, he was the response to Cyber Yogi's Yes. 2006, several years later, mm-hmm. but I guess enough things had come out, have spun out of that first one, that somebody decided to step in and well, set take the rec- control of it. Exactly, set yeah. the record straight, which is, I, I mentioned this earlier, that happens a lot on Reddit. Somebody yeah. comes in with a little more authority, a better story to set the record straight. Yes. All right, so you ready? Here yeah. we go. March 2006, this is a posting by Stephen Roach. I think it's about time I laid this to rest, however entertaining the speculation. My name is Stephen Roach, who is primarily based in the Czech Republic. Zinislauschen was a company set up by myself and several other mainly amateur programmers in 1978 that worked on component parts for printed circuit boards that saw programming as a limited but very profitable sideline. I think the fact that it wasn't the focal point of our business took the pressure off of us, and hence we created some quality work, which quickly gained a reputation within the industry. We were approached around 1980 by a Southern American company that shall remain nameless for legal purposes to develop an idea they had for producing an arcade game with a puzzle element that centered around a new approach to video game graphics. They were very keen, indeed, to gain an upper hand in what was already a very competitive market, 
so we were offered a staggering commission-based remuneration package to develop something special that utilized the technology. We developed the game in little more than two porta cabins that were knocked together where we spent many stressful mornings, evenings, and nights, which was a great pity because it compromised our relaxed and innocently amateurish approach to our business in spite of the financial possibilities. Marek Vachusek was the programmer who came up with the name Polybius. He had studied Greek mythology at Masaryk University and came up with the name because it sounded quite bold and mysterious, which is what we wanted quite simply. The inspired graphics combined with the puzzle elements and scintillating gameplay was something to behold. We play-tested it for hours and hours, and it certainly was an addictive game that was well-loved professionally and recreationally by all that played it. The company couldn't have been happier, and we all thought we were on the verge of something very special indeed. We then received a phone call stating that there were concerns within the company that the basic graphics, which featured prominently in so many other games at the time, were fine for the average gamer to spend hours at a time without any noticeable physical or mental detriments, but the intense and engrossing gameplay of this new step was very much an unknown quantity, so the game was put back several months due to divided opinion within their board of directors. We received heartening, collated playtesting figures and were then told that the game would receive a temporary, limited release, which buoyed us significantly. But shortly after, we received terrible news. A 13-year-old boy from the Lloyd District of Portland, Oregon, had suffered an epileptic fit while playing the game, only six days after the machines had literally been installed. One of the senior employees that I knew very well contacted me to tell me that it had caused immense ripples of panic throughout the company, who were of the opinion that they had, quote, created a monster, unquote, as such. It may sound laughable now, but please bear in mind that this was 25 years ago when the video game industry was in its infancy. Every effort was made to withdraw the game from the public domain as quickly as possible, but the scaremongering was already out in force, and a lot of the children were queuing up or daring their friends to play the supposedly nightmarish game. Company directors descended on the town to assess the situation which may account for these reports of strange men in black suits hanging around, and the machines were often taken in daylight, causing minor but noticeable incidents. As far as I was made aware, only seven machines were distributed around the area, and no other health-related incidents were reported. I'd heard, quote, off the record, unquote, that the company made a one-off settlement to the boy's family, and no more was heard apart from all the internet-based speculation and resulting paranoia. We disbanded Sinus Lotion shortly afterwards because we didn't want to restrict ourselves to the stringent deadlines of other companies and favored distancing ourselves from the game in case of any lingering recriminations, which could have done a great deal of damage to our personal and professional reputations, which was our livelihood, and with some of us having very young families, this was extremely important to us. As far as I'm aware... No ROMs or otherwise exist unless they remain in the bowels of the company that distributed it. We only received a basic payment in view of the fact that the game was withdrawn without nationwide or international distribution, so we grew to loathe it and was often a cursed word whenever we used to meet up and still is today, which is a shame. I still believe we created something that should have changed the face of gaming and would have set us apart from the rest of the industry but arcade games were often compared to drugs at the time because of their addictiveness, and we created something that small-minded bureaucrats perceived to be the heroine of the video game world. That's only crime was to be many years ahead of its time. I'm sure people will doubt the sincerity of this, so feel free to drop me a line at stephenroach at yahoo.com, as I'm happy to answer any questions. Stephen. 
So in 2007, this guy who works at a UK-based blog called BitParade named Dwayne Weatherall actually scored an interview with the man who said he was Stephen Roach. Ah. Dwayne is a real person. I have checked his bona fides or whatever. <laughs> he's a real Ouch. guy. Yeah, yeah he's, right. he's, he's been a writer at BitParade for some time, and he writes about games and all that. But, but he was actually able to find, I think through the email? Is yeah, what, yeah, yeah. He yeah. found the email address because Stephen Roach did say that you could contact him. By the way, we sent an email to that address uh, eh. a few weeks ago and did not hear anything. Didn't back. bounce back. Didn't bounce back. But no one answered. But it. no response. Right. So Dwayne says this in a particular blog entry, which we'll have a link to in the show notes for this episode. To add more fuel to the fire, I managed to contact Stephen Roach with regards to much of the information that I have detailed, which is basically he just told the Polybia story, which we've already told you. The more I asked about his involvement with the game and the more he answered my questions, the more solid everything he states seemed to be, although a huge part of me remained skeptical at the same time. Here's the first question that uh, Dwayne asked. Firstly, can we have some background information on yourself, Sinish Lawson? <laughs> yeah, you get an A for effort. And Polybius. Yeah. Stephen Roach replied, I'd be happy to. My name is Stephen Roach, and I am based in the Czech Republic, where I've been living since the age of 15 when I relocated from... I should have looked this one up before I started. <laughs> yeah. Real? R-H-Y-L? Oh, yeah. I think you're... Uh, Am I saying it right? Yeah. In Wales? Yeah. In 1965, due to my parents' business interests in import-exports, Sinish Lawson was a company set up by myself and three other mainly amateur programmers in 1978 that worked on component parts for printed circuit boards that saw programming as a limited but very profitable sideline. Dwayne then asks, there's been a lot about Polybius floating around. Could you tell us why you wanted to tell your story? Stephen Roach. Certainly. I've always wondered whether anybody remembered the game or even had an opinion of it outside of people we knew. A friend of mine told me that some sort of urban legend had sprung up around the internet and that the game was some kind of experimental government hardware designed for brainwashing people. This was and is very amusing, but then I discovered screenshots and even a shoddy attempt at some sort of game which is a bit of a slap in the face <laughs> to something we considered to be groundbreaking at the time. Then they go on to talk about gameplay. I'm not going to get into all that. It's kind of a long section. You can read the link. And then Dwayne goes on to ask, do you feel a lot of the rumors have any sort of truth behind them? And if so, how out of proportion do you think they have been? Blown out of proportion. That's what that sentence says. <laughs> well, Allow myself that. to introduce myself. <laughs> anyway. St Stephen writes a lot of... That's not Stephen. That's Dwayne, the, oh, the yeah. journalist. Well, yeah, uh, but Steve, Steve, <laughs> Stephen has a lot of run-on sentences. Yeah, we, I, I did want to come back to that in a minute. Okay. Anyway, he says, There have some truth in the fact that anyone living in or around the Lloyd District of Portland, Oregon, would have witnessed quite a lot of drama and hysteria around the time. There would have been a lot of extremely worried board members, engineers, and possibly shareholders flapping around trying to create as less a fuss as possible, but probably creating more by their presence there. Blah, 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 he goes on. Why was the game pulled, he asks, and they go on to mention the 13-year-old boy that had the epileptic fit, etc., etc., all the same stuff that he said before. This story goes on. There's not a mm -hmm. lot of additional information to get from it. This interview pretty much says all the same stuff. That the first one said, yeah, and he repeated a lot of he, phrases. He re yeah, repeated a lot of phrases and a As lot of facts. As if it had been written down, exactly. And and to force point a minute ago, there is a a metric ton. I'm not going to say the. <laughs> I'm trying to keep <laughs> this show clean the these days, yeah. Please. Of misspelled words and grammatical errors. On the other hand, he's 
Czech and English is not his first language necessarily. So maybe that supposedly explains that. This is the other thing, though, about the very first posting we read, the first one, the 1998 posting that before Stephen Roach came along and said, hey, I'm going to put this to rest. This was what really happened. Yeah. The first posting by Cyber Yogi. There's been some things found out about Cyber Yogi. He's oh, a really? German guy. His yeah. name's uh, Christopher or William or something. They actually found his name. I, I don't have it in front of me right now, but they found the guy. He's a prankster. He's a known <laughs> ah, prankster. Okay. He, in fact, there's some other whole prank thread that he put on coinop.org or coinop. Is that the right side? Coinop.org? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. There's some other prank that thread that he put a whole th- that was very wildly successful even before this came along. Ah, I see. Well, that's a. That's- and. Yeah. And the name, say the name of the company again. Zinislution. Yeah. (laughs) It's apparently a very poor translation, like somebody who doesn't know German trying to say mind eraser or sensory erase, right? Well, yes. Uh, An article we're going to get to, I think Brian Dunning, who writes for Skeptoid, he he says that it's kind of like if somebody, a non-German speaker took an English-German dictionary and found a cool phrase. It's basically two words put together. So it's zinis, which is sense- Lution, which is delete. So sense delete or sense sense deprivation. Yes. Brain erase. That's another one. If you play around with it and translate.google.com, yeah. you get some fun uh, combinations. But that's what they're going for. But it's not a real German word combined. It's like Invenomous Arcana. Is that real? No, you made well, it, it up. <laughs> well, no, it's real Latin. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I actually consulted a Latin professor to make ah, sure it was he said real. It was fine. Okay. Yeah, but I didn't know what I was doing when I first came up with it. Well, apparently, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not so shy. But we trademarked it, so good luck copying us. There you go. The point, though, is that it's a little shaky. The whole thing's a little shaky, but to Cyber Yogi's credit, you didn't have to put a whole lot in there, just a few elements of any good story. Like you'd mentioned in the last episode, uh, expert talking. Yes. Where you you, you you stick a few things in there that may or may, may not have been true. And and if you know enough yeah. about how things work, right. you can sound pretty knowledgeable. You can, you can make part of it up, but if you have just enough knowledge at a level that's higher than what most people have, they're going to believe you in most cases. You know, it also goes back to, it's been a while since we did this show, but uh, the John Teeter yeah. story, yeah. which we were going to come back to because it has been revealed. There's more to the story. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty certainly that it was a hoax. Okay. I, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I mean, right. I, you know, I don't know if we're going to have time to get back to that this year. That one was a little more, I would say that that one is a little more complicated because it does involve elements of actual physics. <laughs> physics yeah. Basic ideas that are you know, theoretical at this yeah. point. Yeah. Now here, he doesn't have to do a whole lot. We're not talking 1281 and facts coming out. This is 1981. And that will figure into our analysis at the end because it's not that long ago. We were both kicking around uh, playing video games at the time. Yes. Uh, But in any case, uh, it's far enough back that uh, it might be a little hard for people to research. And this is the other thing that we were talking about this before we started recording. It's like the chocolate diet story. Like you can eat chocolate and lose weight. And... News outlets ran with it. Nobody checks anything anymore. They just think of, they they hear something that's interesting and they don't bother really to get to the source of it. Right. They just, they just put it out there because they need news. Now in this, in this case here, it's an innocent enough story amongst kids starting out and it just grows. And all he does is that it seems to have been forgotten for a while, but he puts a little blurb on a, on a chat room bulletin board and just sits back and sees what happens. Now, you don't think that Cyber... Now, Cyber Yogi and Stephen Roach are not the same person. No. 
Okay. I, I don't believe that. No one seems to believe that. Yeah, it I'm seems like people that. building on off of each other. But only two, but only two cases. It's almost, it's a little bit like Kincaid's cave. You get one article. And from that, a lot of thought and speculation and and stories come out of it. When I first read Stephen Roach's first story about the, they were testing the game, it caused seizures. Right. It seemed pretty plausible to me, but there are a lot of people who think that his details are sketchy and also he's hard to reach. And, you know, aside from this one interview that, that Dwayne got over at Bit Parade, He's hard to reach. We'd reached out to him and didn't hear anything back. You know, who knows? Maybe he'll write us back in a little while, but it's it's all very sketchy. And it's funny because you mentioned uh, Brian Dunning, who was yeah. the author and host of the long-running and respected podcast Skeptoid, which has several hundred episodes out, wow. uh, which he's still actively producing. I salute his time. Yeah, and he he, he wrote a pretty interesting article about it, and, and there's a podcast, too. Is We'll have links to both of those. I don't think I'm gonna. <laughs> Are you gonna mention a little side fact about Mister? De- look, it's it's not. Um, no, it's I don't. out there. It's out there. You know what? You can look it up. How's that? Yeah, just he 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 did a little time. Let's just <laughs> let's just say that. Well, way. he had an ID. This is a guy who reports and skept. You know, <laughs> on skepticism. He's just yeah. at the leading yeah. edge of skepticism, which we like to think of ourselves as being appropriately skeptical when we need to be but we also like yeah. the mystery of a good story and and we and i think it would be, i look we've we've said this from the beginning it would be kind of boring if we were one side or the other if yeah. we believed everything and of course i think on itunes there there's some people who have criticized us for being too credulous yes know? but there's really a lot know of what but, that means <laughs> too credulous but the point is that there's other folks i think probably the majority say we're we're fairly even keeled we like to go with what makes sense to us and what's logical and start there. And, but look at every option. Don't just put stuff aside that you can't explain. That should be looked at as well. I agree. Okay. I'm sorry. You want to make another point? No, other than it's a little ironic. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Dunning. Was, yes, he did. He, it's inter- look, it's interesting. He's, uh, he did some he's time. sorry. He's sorry. <laughs> I yes, think he made, a, he made a statement. No, anyway, it's just interesting. He had an idea that he thought could make some money, and it did. It did. Yeah. Well, just wasn't go. quite legal. In All any right. case, in this instance, though, I will say it's one of the more straightforward and well-thought-out articles on it. Yes. There, there's been a lot of some – there's been some funny ones, people making light of it with some with some good funny writing, and we'll have links to those as well. Yeah. But I, I think as, as far as breaking this thing down, and it does – well, honestly, he was lying about that, too. <laughs> if he did the – if he actually did follow up the leads and, did, and do the research and try and find the first mentions of it – Anything related to it, newspaper articles, that was another big thing for me. Look, if it was that big of a thing in Portland, there's not a whole other lot of news going on locally. Well, that's right. And and I'm glad you brought that up because we asked Tess to take a look for any newspaper articles about in 1981 in Portland having anything to do with – any of this. Right. No, again, okay. The term polybius, <laughs> epileptic yeah. seizures, kids fighting, suicides. Can I, there's nothing. There we, is nothing. Right. We have evolved some journalistic ethics since Kincaid's Cave in 1908. Yes. You know, ah, right. I don't yeah. know why I get, I get that mixed up. But 1909, where now you, you, if you put something out there, people expect – they're going to follow up with it. Yeah. There is nothing. The only thing yeah. that she found, she did find one article was on microfiche and we couldn't get our hands on it. We, It's going to be weeks and weeks before it would come in. It, it said controversial arcade to close, video arcade to close. And that's all it said. And that was yeah. in Portland and the year was 1984. I suspect that that has nothing to do with 
Polybius. So having addressed everything that there is about it, like the original postings, the rebuttal postings, who's real, who's not, even though, like I said, there's a plausibility to me about the field testing this game and the epileptic seizures, and, and we're going to yeah. come to that in a minute, and then it having to be removed. But, but before we talk about the epilepsy, I do want to mention some significant pop culture references to Polybius that I think has contributed to its fame. Right. Uh, the first one is the movie The Last Starfighter, which is... That's not so clear to me, but the idea is... It, I remember watching the movie at the, at the time, and it was a good idea. Well, I've read that there's a reference to Polybius in The Last Starfighter, but I couldn't find the script. You know, a lot of scripts you can find online. Right. The only place I could find it was $15. I didn't want to pay for it. Nor but... did we want to burn up a, a, a queue in our Netflix. Uh, Netflix <laughs> I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it's in there. Um, it may not be. I didn't, I didn't even check. I didn't for for those it. of you that yeah. haven't seen the movie, the, the main character played by Lance Guest, who I actually is a friend of a friend. I'm trying to get him to record a little. He's right here. No, he, <laughs> no. he may be here later, though. Maybe. maybe. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, okay. uh, but his character, Alex Rogan is playing a video game called The Last Starfighter, much like Polybius. It's in this, you know, arcade, and he gets this super high score on it, and it turns out the game is a recruiting device for alien warfare. And this this group of aliens come down, and they say, you are amazing, we need you to come save our kind. And right. it's, it's actually a pretty fun movie. All the effects are early CGI, like, I think it's a video toaster, kind of. It's crazy. <laughs> it's good. It's a hard, it's a It's a fun little movie. It's a fun movie. But it's a great setup, because yeah. it's it's uh, the Gordian Knot. It's uh, whoever may, you know, conquer this video game shall rule. Well, they, yeah. they're looking, look, they're looking for the last Starfighter. They want the, the kid who's the best. Anybody, I think. Yeah. It's uh, Dan Hurley, right? Uh, I'm, no, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of an old guy. I think they're reptilian guys. It's Oh, like, the rep, oh the reptile guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Might be. No, look, the, the point is that— And Robert uh, Preston's in it too, right? Ah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's—okay, there we go. Now we're, I, we Might have been his last movie. No, and you know what? Right. We haven't—the yeah. Music Man. We haven't yeah. really talked about this. That's why we're kind of uh, flopping around here. Yeah. Uh, but the point is it's a great setup because a, a mysterious game is placed in a convenience store, I believe. Yeah. And he just goes every day to kind of goof around. And he hits the high score, right? Yeah. And it it attracts some attention because, like, who is this kid? Who is this being? They don't know. Yeah. It's like, who is this being that was able to master these controls? Yes. Because we want that guy to save our world. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of the setup. And so he is visited by a, a you could say, a, like a man in black type. Yeah. Uh, and I believe he's presented with this challenge. He doesn't believe it, of course. This and that. He has to be convinced. That's a great, the rest of it unfolds like a regular kids movie as, as it would as you would expect it to. But that's the kind of the similar setup. Now, the question is, was that inspired by the story? I think there are people that think the story of the, that the script was inspired by Polybius. Yeah, right. there's some people that think that there were aspects of it. I don't have proof of that. And I don't know if they made reference to Polybius in the movie. I, I should probably watch it again. I haven't seen it in a while. <laughs> okay, I did no, see no. it two or three times, yeah, though, right. but, um, uh, and enjoyed it. It's it's a, g- a great example of a science fiction movie. I believe your 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 son can watch it too. It's it's pretty. Yeah, uh, that's yeah a good there's nothing idea. horrible about it. It's it's kind of fun. Yeah, his um, current favorite movie is Kelly's Heroes. So I made the mistake oh, of showing dear. him. He's obsessed with. He's seen it like fifty <laughs> times now. He's gonna watch all the Dirty Harry movies as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. So that's not the only prominent. And actually, it's not so prominent because we can't make a direct connection. No, there's, I think the one you're about to mention, mention here, The Simpsons. Yes. Episode three, season 18 of The Simpsons, which aired in September of 2006, by the way. Yeah. Which coincides with the one of the postings online. I think the Stephen Roach posting was 2006, wasn't Pretty it? Pretty close, yeah. yeah. 
This episode was entitled "Please Homer, Don't Hammer Him." It's a reference to MC Hammer, yeah, which mm-hmm. was that, that that album. Please Hammer, don't hurt him. Yeah, please yeah, Hammer, don't. Okay, yeah. please Homer, don't hammer him. There's a scene in this where Bart goes into a video arcade and he's making fun of how old the games are. He's like, who, <laughs> he says, "Who got these high scores, Pilgrims?" Yeah, you know. <laughs> right. but no, he, yeah. He goes over to this game. He's like, "I never seen this one." It's called Triangle Wars. Yeah. Next to the Triangle Wars cabinet is a Polybius cabinet. Right. It's just sitting there. And on the front of the coin slot mechanism below the controls, it says property of U.S. government. And the other funny joke is I love there's only one button. Yeah. Meaning you just start it, it does the rest. <laughs> you don't even need to play with a joystick or anything. Yeah. 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 But so, no, it's it's pretty funny. And of course, the, the idea that it's a very old rundown uh, video arcade, I think owned by Mayor Quimby. Yeah. And he didn't want to fix it up because uh, somebody was murdered there. So, right, some, right. Yeah, something about Well, that. And, and for them, they were, they're into what they call freeze-frame gags. And I think you're the one that found uh, in our research on this with this really great article about how the Simpsons writers, including Al Jean, who was the showrunner, yeah. whose name, you've, if you watch The Simpsons, you've seen a million times. Right. He attended Harvard to study mathematics when he was 16. Yes. I mean, these guys are high-level math nerds, and they've hidden all kinds of high-level math jokes in The Simpsons for years. Right. And what Scott was talking about, uh, freeze-frame gag, what that is, is that these shows were coming out, and they were already popular, of course. And I remember I used to do this. You, you'd set your VCR. you record these on VHS tape. And I would watch them later because I'd be working or something. Right. And what the idea was is that they, a lot of them go by so fast, you're not going to notice. Yeah. But for those nerds, I probably like myself, you, you, you freeze frame it, you can click back a few frames, and you can catch funny things. Like I always wanted to see how much does Maggie cost when she's being scanned at the beginning. Yes. It, there's, a little, there's little gags in there. And, and uh, in the video game world, they're, they're called Easter eggs. Yeah. Also little, in programming. Right. Little surprises for those who are willing to go find them. Yeah. Yeah. Since these guys are all university level math whizzes, they've stuck these jokes in. So I guarantee that anytime you see like Homer doing, he was doing a donut equation. Those are all real equations. Those are all real theorems. They'd made a a joke about Fermat's last theorem, which I don't want to try and explain here. I actually do understand (laughs) it. It's pretty simple. It has to do with X squared plus Y squared equals Z squared or something. I can't remember, but there's no real solution for it. They haven't been able to figure it out. And he actually scribbles in a scene on a chalkboard Uh, what appears to be a solution to it that some people have found and were like, oh, my God, and they put it in their calculator and it works. And it's like, wait, did the Simpsons writers just make a joke out of a solution to this theorem? Turns out it works on your calculator because your calculator only goes out to like 10 decimal places or whatever. Once you get past that, it turns out to to be not a solution. It's what they call a near miss. <laughs> but that's <laughs> wow. the kind of jokes they're making yeah, on that, on that right. show. And I, they're hiding prime numbers everywhere and Mersenne numbers and then these other numbers called narcissistic numbers. Which, right. You know, we have an affinity for numbers. We don't know a whole lot about math, but anybody who's seen our logo <laughs> knows that we like strange numbers. You're right. Although we have no idea what they do or how they work. <laughs> just that I, I've just heard of a few. But the idea, though, is that people in the know have embedded stuff, not only in these shows, but other pop culture. But but this game referenced here is probably the most clear one. Nobody even knows really what the logo looks like. Some have said it looks like the font which spells out Polybius looks like the old Williams games and that that style of font. And there's cabinets. You see pictures of cabinets all over the internet, but they're all fakes. Yeah. They're either Photoshopped or people are actually building games because there is a ROM. And by the way, we've mentioned the word ROM and BIOS a lot. And I I wanted to make that clear for people. It's a little technical. We did say it means read only memory. It's like the cartridge, right? I think we said that. It's a set of computer instructions that you shouldn't ever have to touch. Yeah. A, a, A locked, 
drive, if you will, that has instructions on it uh, that just runs the game. It is the, yes. it is, it is the game. Do you want to mention probably the second, more recent, I would say, but a great movie, <laughs> uh, but it, it supposedly pops up there. Wreck-It Ralph. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I, they, they say there's a Polybius cabinet in Wreck-It Ralph. It's in the scene, where, you know, in an arcade. There's a million arcades in Wreck-It Ralph because it's about video games. In fact, it's about the early video games for the most part and early video game characters. Yeah. But the sad truth is that the appearance of Polybius in Wreck-It Ralph is a Photoshop fakery. <laughs> It's fake, it's but fake. it looks but it looks good. So I will. It's online. The, yeah. It's on the internet. But yeah. a lot of people see that picture and oh look, it's Polybius. It's in the you know. It's right. A, they well, hit it in Wreck It Ralph. I really like the movie. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a it's a great little story. And, and when you get the disc, I always you if I have time, I'll watch the behind the scenes and the making of. And they have a really good one for this because if you're into it, I suggest watching it because. The designers of the movie, the, the writers of the movie, and the animators put in a lot of little Easter eggs all yeah. about classic old video games. Yes, they did. And a lot of them you have, you do have to freeze frame and slow them down. But in this disc, uh, in fact, it's I think it's pretty interactive. Uh, they'll go and explain all these, and it's a lot of fun because there's a lot of. In fact, there's there's one where in this in this kind of cyberspace, there is a vault of knowledge of code that has to be unlocked. And they do, and the code is left, left, right, right, up, down, up, down, which is the old <laughs> Mortal Kombat, you know, uh, oh, code right. to get yourself a hundred free lives. Right, right. Look, there's a lot of fun little things like that. If you're kind of a video game nerd, I, I really suggest looking at that. However, nothing about Polybius. Yeah. Okay. Not 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 one thing about it. And in fact, the game that says it's Polybius on in the stills that you'll see on the internet that is supposedly Wreck-It Ralph is actually Frogger. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Again, I had a cocktail table version of that. It was but, a fun game. But different type of game also. Earlier. Frogger's a raster game. It's a, right. Yeah. It's a totally normal game. It's not a vector game. Like Tempest, which we mentioned Tempest, and I do want to briefly talk about that. I, I In college, I actually managed to get a hold of a Tempest, uh, what's called a cabaret cabinet. Is so, that the mini one? Yeah. It's a yeah. smaller cabinet, same size screen. Right. But it was pretty cool because my roommate and I, a yeah. good friend of mine, Phil, we lived in this apartment together in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it was a big apartment. First of all, the market in Greensboro wasn't very expensive. And we had uh, three bedrooms, upstairs and a downstairs, hardwood floors and Dang. all that stuff. And it was only – when we moved in, I think it was three ninety five a month. There was a closet on the first floor. We took the door off of it and we just backed this Tempest right <laughs> yeah. into there into the living room and was in there all the time. And people came over and played and we had a blast. It was a lot of fun. Right. Eventually, I sold it because I was moving to California with my fiance, currently my wife. And after getting into California, I bought a full-sized version of Tempest from a company here in Los Angeles. And that one was amazing with all the artwork on the sides. But my favorite thing about Tempest, aside from the artwork, which is really amazing looking, was how fast you could play the game. And also, it has a unique controller. It's actually unique to that game. And I, I do remember reading a long time ago, there was one other game that had the same controller, but I can't remember the name of it, and I never played it. But Tempest was the one that made it famous. It had a spinner. Yeah, and a heavily weighted knob. It, yeah, yeah, it was a weighted knob that was super well lubricated. Yeah. And I mean, this thing, <laughs> yeah. like... And it, it, well, you could spin it. You and, would spin it, and it yeah. would keep spinning for like 20 seconds. It right. was amazing. and. As fast as you could spin it, the game that's on the screen yeah. would react. And it was a vector-based game. All that the screen could do was show you straight lines, and then they were in different colors. Right. Like three, red, yellow, green, blue, maybe. I think that might be it. Red, yellow, green, blue, and sort of white, possibly. The gameplay was very fast, and yeah. you had these, like, three – and it was three-dimensional, much yeah. like Battlezone, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Right. Battlezone was one color that was black and white, but it had a green overlay, so it looked green. Yeah. The Tempest – 
the gameplay was so amazing. It was so quick. You would spin this knob and you would try to kill these things that were coming down this alley towards you. Now, there's a lot of people online that will tell you that Polybius was actually an early version of Tempest, a test version of Tempest. But there is nothing to support that. The first versions of Tempest were actually called – one was called Aliens and the other one was called Vortex, I think. Yeah. Something something to right. like that. But none of them were called Polybius. Also, why would you call them Polybius? Why would you call anything Polybius? You think Kevin Art was a, was a Greek philosopher yeah. and, and yeah, yeah, historian. Holding you know. up the Constitution, yeah, because right. uh, that was the other thing. His big thing was uh, separation of power. No, no, he, but, he, was, uh, he was a known figure. He, he influenced and inspired our founding fathers yes. and had a lot of great ideas about the separation of the of governmental powers, influenced John Adams quite a bit. So he he made his mark in history, but kind of the the connection point here is that there doesn't seem to be much of a connection to what the game is. And if yeah. you look at every other game that was put out there at the time, they all have very dramatic names to entice people. Yeah, you know, wars, battle zone. You know, it's like it's all it's very exciting. That is not exciting. No, anyway, hey kids, yeah. Polybius. <laughs> but, what? Uh, but the thing yeah. about Tempest, I tell you, I it had ninety nine levels. Yeah. I got. All the way up to level 72 was the oh. highest I could play before I would usually die. But it allows you to restart. I probably had to restart two or three times to get to that level. And I had a high score on this one in my edit bay for years. And then my company had a big party. This was in the salad days of the of commercial television and music video production in the uh, in the 90s, in the late 90s. And a guy came to the party who was a visual effects supervisor. And I guess he had his own Tempest 2, and I didn't know it. And he went in my edit bay, and in front of everyone I knew... Blew my high score out of the water. I'm still upset about that. Eventually, I got it back. <laughs> right. It's, man, this is my house, man. Yeah. Why are you doing this? At least man? he didn't leave a cigarette butt on the plastic No, console, no, he didn't. Like, uh, like so many of the tabletop games. Yeah. Uh, no question here, though. Did anybody at any time, because you had a diverse group of people playing this thing, did anybody have any kind of eye pain, freaky, headache? No. Weird side no, effect. No. And I had more than a few bouts of – it was a great place to sit. I had a bar stool I would put in front of it. If you're depressed, you could sit there for hours, <laughs> especially on yeah. free play. Right. Well, just play and play and play. I never got sick or nauseous. And I'm actually prone to motion sickness. I have a hard oh, time in the back seats of cars. Sometimes I have a hard time or – if I, I can't read or look at my phone or, you know, when I used well, to live in New York, if I did yeah. that even for a second in a cab, I would get like kind of wonky. So Right. Well, but then, and Tempest never did that to me. Just and that's a it's a good point that you bring up because it's the 3D animation on it is very accelerated when you move between the levels. It's going yeah. crazy. All these things are coming at you. You have to think very fast. And didn't the uh, didn't the designer, he had a dream about monsters coming yeah, out of the ground, coming out of a uh, hole, aliens yeah. crawling up out of a hole. That was right. his impetus for Tempest. Right. Impetus for Tempest. <laughs> so, but let's come back to Battlezone. If okay. anyone's ever played Battlezone. And we're, we've got links to the IGN website where you can play both of these games online if you want. Tempest is not the same on your computer keyboard without that spinner. The spinner is the key on that thing. So it's not as much fun, yeah. but it is the original code. It's the original ROM code. And you can see and how it plays and how fun it is. We you're also... About, yeah, you're talking about Battlezone. Battlezone and Tempest are both on this. There's a lot of old games are on that site. Also, I want to say that we have a link to a ROM for a Polybius emulator that a lot of people think is the real game. And when you see the fake cabinets on the internet, when you Google image searches of Polybius, the fake cabinets are all running this ROM. And it's it's an estimation of the the people that have the ROM. They allow it for free. And even they are, they're admitting that it's based on speculation, this game that they programmed. Yes. And I, I want to get onto the technical aspects of it. Before I do that, I do want to mention Battlezone, 
which was a game programmed by famous Atari programmer Ed Rotberg. Right. Dave Thurer is the one who came up with Tempest. Yes, with Tempest. Yes, yeah, he was right. the inventor of Tempest. Okay. And Rotberg developed Battlezone for Atari. And in this game, you would go up and it had a visor that you would look in. And you had two joysticks and you would drive like a tank. And it was it right. was fun. And you would circle around. I actually posted a picture of it to our Facebook and our Twitter for people who are following us there. And I think I put it on Tumblr too. I can't remember. But and uh, possibly even Instagram. Yeah. Of what Battlezone looks like. And it's it's a fun, addictive game. My son actually loves it. He plays yeah. it on well, he's, he's my computer. He's obsessed with tanks. Yeah, yes. he is a little bit obsessed with tanks. But it's a fun game, but it's a vector graphic game. Right. That's an important thing because the, the mention of Polybius being both vector and raster capable is technically impossible at that time. Now, when you look at the ROM and even the GIF I posted on Twitter sort of teasing this show, you can see that it has what looks like vector and raster graphics at the same time. Yeah. You can do that now. But even what you're doing is you're pretending to be Vector. It's not really Vector. Right. It's, it's pretending to be Vector. Vector is is gone, unless you've got an old oscilloscope or an old video game. Right. You're, you're not really being a Vector game. So the long and short of it is, is that the monitors that display Vector graphics and the monitors that d- display raster graphics, the hardware is technically different and cannot coexist. Yeah, that's a good point to make because uh, with the technology of the time. Now, we're going to get to some probably the most way out connection and conspiracy theory here, but that's a good argument in that they did not have the technology of the time to combine those two. As we said before, those are two different types of monitors and varied greatly in how they are able to reproduce images. Yes. So what you're seeing, it's a reimagining or it's taking the bits of what was described and I guess it's kind of a puzzler. Are you going to describe the, the gameplay, as they say, on the... Uh, of Polybius? Yeah. I don't know if I want to. Okay. Well, it's not... It's not all, Even the description of yeah. the gameplay isn't much fun. No. It's, <laughs> well, when you, you look at You can download it, it and play. Uh, I mean, if you have a PC. I yeah. was playing it. I, I happen to have an old Dell, and I was playing it on the Dell. I'm, I'm pri- we're primarily on Macs here with, our, with yeah. our show, but... Well, you can watch a video clip of it on YouTube yeah. and, and how it works, and you get the idea. Now, the only thing I'll say that, that's kind of strange, I do like the music. It's really, it's kind of creepy. Yeah. The other thing is that in the center, it, there is a uh, geometric pattern that is actually sacred geometry to mm-hmm. a degree. Mm-hmm. So somebody put a little thought into this, into furthering the myth. Yeah. But with a little bit of, uh, again, my favorite part of it, a little bit of study. A little yeah. bit of knowledge, right? Uh, but but it's so it's too complicated, really, to, to even be fun. Because what I think the basic the, the uh, idea though is that there is a number in the center where these monsters are coming out and, and things are shooting at you. If you shoot them and the number circling is divisible by the number in the center, then it it reduces in half. Yeah. If you eliminate it, you go to the next level. If you shoot it, it's a square root of the center number. It, you immediately go to the next level. See, already this is a horrible game. <laughs> It's yeah, like because there's yeah. there's too much math and re- and really it's so crazy and it, but here's a good point and we're building to this uh, conspiracy kind of thing because what happens is that as you start to play the game it starts off pretty simple and, and innocuous then it gets more crazy with the graphics and the flashing the yes. flashing and the graphics and the colors and then there appears to be subliminal messages that come on yes. Let's set this up. So basically, it looks like they were inspired by the John Carpenter fun movie, They Live. Right. But we're still talking about the emulator here. We're st- Exactly. This is not... And, and the information that was used to make that program, right. we don't know where that came from. 
No, we don't. But because it's it not have... in the descriptions of the postings, really. Right. It's from all the other just sort of miscellany lore out there. But the emulator does have these subliminal messages that come up with text messages saying no creativity. I can't remember what the other messages were, but that is an old form of learning that we'll, we'll get to in a second here. But so that's a little weird thing that they threw in to yeah. kind of get make the game even spookier. What's going on here? Right. What is the game trying to achieve with the player other than freak you out and give you a headache? Well, and let's talk about epilepsy a little bit. This is There's an important thing about epilepsy. It can actually be triggered by a s- certain sequences of flashing lights and, right. and that sort of thing. And this is something that everybody knows now. But back in the early 80s, people didn't really know that. Well, not with published media. And certainly there's, you know, that, remember that one? Actually, that was also spoofed in The uh, Simpsons. I think they go to Japan and there's a flashing kind of a Pokemon character on the TV and uh, they all zone out. Well, there was a famous episode with Pokemon. In fact, let me just uh, pop into this link real quick. March 11th, 2000. This is again from the Wayback Machine from uh, Washington.edu. Uh, neuroscience. So oh, that would be University of Washington. Yes. Pokemon, episode number 38, packs a punch. On the evening of December 16th, 1997, millions of people all over Japan gathered in their homes to watch Pokemon, episode 38. About 20 minutes into the program, there was a scene of a rocket explosion that flashed red and blue lights at a rate of about 12 times per second. This explosion scene was mixed with about five seconds of flashing lights from the eyes of Pikachu, a popular Pokemon character. Suddenly, viewers started to complain of blurred vision, headaches, dizziness, and nausea. Some people even had seizures, convulsions, and lost consciousness. A total of 685 children, 310 boys, 375 girls, were taken to hospitals by ambulances. Although many children recovered during the ambulance trip, more than 150 of them were admitted to the hospitals. Two people stayed in the hospital for over two weeks. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, that all fits. Um, that falls into what yeah. they call photosensitive seizures. Right. And you can even see, like, to this day, on pretty much any game system, Xbox has a photosensitive seizure warning. It actually says, a very small percentage of people may experience a seizure when exposed to certain visual images, including flashing lights or patterns that may appear in video games. Even people who have no history of seizures or epilepsy may have an undiagnosed condition that can cause these photosensitive epileptic seizures while watching video games. These seizures may have a variety of symptoms, including lightheadedness, altered vision, eye or face twitching, jerking or shaking of arms or legs, disorientation, confusion, or momentary loss of awareness. Seizures may also cause loss of consciousness or convulsions that can lead to injury from falling down or striking nearby objects. Right. Now, this, these are all real symptoms. As it's been described to me by people who experience them, it's all the same things that they were describing the video game was doing, the mythical, possibly mythical, Polybius, Polybius game. Right. In that when you experience a seizure, and usually it's anything rhythmic. I've heard people with epilepsy can experience an episode by brushing their teeth because it's rhythmic stimulation. Like I said, was it 12 times per second? Yes. Uh, if it were any slower or much slower... I think it would be annoying to people who experience these symptoms, but it may not bring on a small seizure or an episode. And according to the Epilepsy Foundation, which we went to their website and, and checked this out, only about 3%, 3% of people with epilepsy are photosensitive. Interesting. Okay. So it's a small number. Right. It's a small number. G- getting back to the other implausibilities with the game. Yeah. 
one of the main points that we visited a blog that you found actually called uh, Den of Geek. And there was a man there named Jason yeah. Helton who posted this on November 30th, 2009. He, he's the one that actually brought to our attention the valid point, which I would have understood anyway because I owned several vector-based games, but that raster and vector monitors just don't mix. They cannot coexist. Right. It, or certainly not in 1981. Two different technologies. He also makes the point that no one really has an accurate working ROM anywhere. Right. Nobody has the, the cartridge that would make this work, the, the game code that would make this work, or the card. In that case, it would have been a giant card. People but. have said they have, but no one's been able to produce anything. Right. And you know that they would if they had it. They'd be showing it off. Well, and you know what Jason Helton also did, and this is something I love, and this one was a little bit hard to find, as this is not as easy to find as the, as the rest of the information on Polybius. He actually emailed Ed Rotberg. Right. Because, and we didn't point this out earlier, we should have said this, Ed Rotberg was rumored by many to be the guy that wrote the program, the code for Polybius. Well, you know why? Because, yeah, he 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 developed Battlezone. Yeah. He, he was, was one of the main designers. Exactly. So, obviously, because of the uh, the vector description of it being close to Tempest, as we mentioned. The, uh, also an Atari game. Right. Yeah. People can make that connection, and in the world of legend... It makes it believable. Like, right. oh, yeah, that guy designed Battlezone. And you know what? The military was interested in Battlezone as a possible tester for an M2 Bradley fighting vehicle. That's right. Which kind of like – it's like a high-powered armored personnel carrier. IFV, yeah. uh, in- infantry fighting vehicle, which right. looks like a tank but holds a bunch of dudes inside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think six. And then there's a – yeah, a gunner and a driver. Yeah. And in fact, there's this book called Halcyon Days that we found online. Halcyon Days, Interviews with Classic Computer and Video Game Programmers, compiled and edited by James Haig, with an introduction by John Romero. Copyright 2002, James Haig. This book was originally published and it was sold on Discat in 2002. Uh, Mr. Haig said, Halcyon Days has run its commercial course. I'm putting it on the web because I still think the information in this book is fantastic and inspiring. The book was the first collection of interviews with game programmers that was more about the history of gaming and less about being a collector. Right. And so I, it's really cool that he's made it available online, and we are providing that link for our listeners that are interested. But here is an excerpt from the book, which is an interview with Ed Rotberg about Battlezone and the claim that Battlezone and Rotberg were approached, or more specifically, Rotberg was approached and Atari was approached yeah. to, to develop a U.S. Army version of Battlezone. Right. This is an important little section because this plays into the whole part of the theory of the Polybius story being a military experiment, which we haven't really mentioned. We're going to get into that now, but it's yeah. just the goal to brainwash kids and mind control and all this kind of – that's why these men in the suits were around and extracting data and kids were getting sick and that sort of thing. So let's come back to Mr. Rotberg's interview in – James Haig's book, Halcyon Days, which is available online for free. Haig asks the following question. What's the story behind the U.S. Army version of Battlezone? Rotberg answers, there was a group of consultants for the Army, a bunch of retired generals and such, that approached Atari with the idea that the technology for Battlezone could be used to make a training simulator for the then-new infantry fighting vehicle. The idea was that such a simulator could be made into a game that would encourage the soldiers to use it. They would learn not only the basic operation of the IFV technology, but would also learn to distinguish between the friendly and enemy vehicle silhouettes. They approached us with this in December of 1980 and found a champion in the company in Rick Moncrief. They wanted a prototype to be finished in time for a worldwide TRADOC conference, T-R-A-D-O-C, 
being held via satellite in March 1981. I don't know what TRADOC is. Maybe you can look that up while I'm talking to you. T-R-A-D-O-C. Next question. What changes were made to the original version of the game? Quite a number of changes were made. This actually, the answer on this is not significant. It has to do with rate of fire and the reticle and how they were driving the tank. Here's the more important question. How did you feel about working on it? I hated it. First of all, because of the short time frame involved. I practically lived at Atari for the first three months of 1981. That was pretty much a lost period of my life. Secondly, I was vehemently opposed to Atari getting into this sort of business at all. Remember, the world was a very different place in 1981 than it is now. There was still a Soviet Union who was perceived to be our nation's biggest threat. My contention was that many of us engineers had the option to go to work for companies doing military contracting, and we consciously chose to work at a company that was not so involved. Also, working as any kind of government contractor opens a company up to many additional rules and regulations. This whole issue came to a head at our company's next brainstorming session. At one meeting, I actually got into a shouting match with the president of the division at that time, Joe Robbins. This was in front of much of the company brass, including Ray Kassar. So, to be absolutely clear, Ed Rotberg was against doing anything with the military. And going back to the earlier article that Jason Helton wrote at Den of Geek on November 30th, 2009, that's the one that you found, Helton actually emailed Ed Rotberg as well and asked him about Polybius. Yeah, he emailed him. He was kind enough to email back. Yes, and, and Rotberg said, and I quote, I can state with confidence that I never saw or heard of and certainly never worked on any game called Polybius. I understand that my name has somehow gotten connected to this game, if it ever existed, and have even seen some sites that purport to show the screen display, gameplay, etc. I have had nothing to do with any of those. Well, there you go. Yeah. And Helton, by the way, he played the simulator so much that he said it did make him dizzy. Oh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> the, the emulated yeah. version. No, no. He's got a funny description of a little blue, but it's a, it's a funny description of like, yes, this will give you a headache. Yeah. If you're prone to this, it will freak you out and you'll probably, you'll probably hurl. Did you find out what TRADOC was? Yeah. The United States Army Training and Doctrine Command. Oh. Tradoc. Tradoc. So, well, they, they develop training systems, and they're always looking for new stuff. That's not an unheard of thing, because you've heard of Doom 2 and the Marine version, right. Marine Do. Right. It's a way to kind of build morale, get young guys interested in learning techniques, how to uh, handle weapons, tactics. So there's different elements involved. But anyway, there is a history of the Army interacting with video games and game designers to create things that will uh, be useful for training. Of course, so there you of go. course. Yeah. yeah. The other point to make, though, is that to design a game like that, it's a highly specialized skill. You just can't ask some kid, well, nowadays maybe you could, you know, yeah. ask some kid in his basement. But but there's an East German version of a game called uh, Poly... Uh, something Poly like Play. that. Polyplay. Polyplay. Yes, which Not, they thought yeah. maybe because the original poster... Was German. Was German. They thought maybe he extracted the name Polybius from Polyplay. Well, possibly. Yeah. No, no, that that makes sense. And that doesn't make it real. Yeah. Uh, other than the game, the East German game was no fun. They were ripping off some technology that, you know, once the wall came down in Berlin, somebody might get sued. So it, it kind of went away. But it was all over the place. People know about it. The case I'm trying to make, though, is that... That if you're going to really try and design a game that has all these advanced properties, advanced graphics, you have to go to professionals. And you just can't have, you know, some uh, private at the uh, Pentagon, like, here, you you work this up. We'll we'll come back in six months, see what you got. No, no, you have to go to Atari. You have to go to Sega. You have to go to these early pioneers who are already making advances. And that's usually what they do. Yeah. 
That's you know, true. So there you go. Well, we've had a few requests to come in via email and Twitter channels and other places recently for Forrest to be let off his chain. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, DJ Remixer. Uh, yeah, no, I, I looked up his, I, I forgot his name, but he was, he's just the one guy. Um, no, there was, there was a second one. Oh, goodness. Yeah. It no, came, was, I can't remember where it came in really? through Facebook or something, but oh. I, I don't know. People might have the impression that I'm not letting you get as fringy as you might naturally want to be. He's got a, a trigger that releases a neurotoxin uh, and a kind of a, <laughs> uh, a psychoactive drug here that uh, keeps me uh, uh, quelled. Well, and, here's uh, where we're going to do it. We're, we're wrapping this story up, yeah. and I wanted to let Forrest cover this section – or excuse me, not let. I'm not your boss. <laughs> And I, oh, damn right. I, yeah. I wanted Forrest to cover this part about just the plausibility of the government using something like a video game to control in some way the minds of unsuspecting people, especially kids. One quick thing I wanted to mention as kind of a wrap-up. I, I was talking about – you may have cut this already, but the flashing subliminal images – that came up on the screen during supposed, the supposed gameplay, which is part of the legend that, that was happening. It was telling you it's trying to control your brain right. with specific messages. Don't be creative. Obey. Purchase. Well, that was, in the, that was in They Live. It was consume. They're trying to placate you because there's a secret alien invasion going on that you can't see. But Rowdy Roddy Piper had go, folks. Hang on. He well, I'm just talking about the movie. Hey, <laughs> so he had a rowdy rowdy, which is a well, no, boy, you want to talk about getting crazy? There are reptilian aliens amongst. When us. hell comes to Frogtown, well, there you go. It's it, is that it? Is that a thing? That's a that's a rowdy rowdy movie. One of my favorites. Oh yes, you were describing like it. Mad Max Corvairs. There you go. Stuff. Right, post apocalyptic. Well, yeah. in this in this scenario, you need these special glasses to to see that aliens are amongst us now. Uh, that's They Live, isn't it? That is They Live. That yeah. was John Carpenter. Yeah. That was 1984. I'm sorry. No, no. Yeah. They Live came out in 1988. Now, the timeline here is interesting because that's after 81 yeah. when the legend happened. And just before, uh, a few years before, the theory, the legend of what happened in the game. So I'm contending here that the idea of the flashing subliminal images coming up was maybe taken from They Live. That's just been described in other articles as as that being the case, is that okay, maybe they yeah. borrowed it. Because I did, it's a I cult, did read that. I it's a cult it. classic. You yeah, know? yeah, it is. Yeah, so, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. But in any case, I also contend, though, that that movie, maybe John Carpenter, it was, it was taken from a short story, but he, I think he wrote the screenplay fully. He may have gotten that from uh, another really interesting film, conspiratorially, The Parallax View. Yeah. Now, see, I haven't seen that in a long time. I know I watched right. it. I, I think remember... I sent you I, I sent you a little clip because I, yes. I, geez, I think I saw that in the theater when I was a kid, which is kind of rough. It was really interesting. I I was really into spy thrillers, and this is what the, the premise is, is that Warren Beatty gets really paranoid that something's going on. There's an assassination attempt, and so he tries to infiltrate this, and when he goes into this mysterious parallax corporation, they perform a test, and he sits in a, in a darkened room. I had a friend of mine, uh, and uh, she told me about this form of training using a machine called a tachistoscope. I hope I'm saying that right. Tachistoscope. I don't think anyone's going to know. <laughs> it's like, well, no, if you're, uh, well, if you're of a certain age, this was popular in the 60s. Okay. What it was, imagine you, when you go to the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, you get your driver's license, you look through a machine, and, it's, and it, it'll switch slides. Yes. Of like, read this out loud. It's, it's testing your vision. 
this was training specifically designed, I think, for school kids to for speed reading and you know grammar comprehension, reading comprehension, grammar, things like that. So it's a useful tool for that. They really stopped using it. But that's what Warren Beatty's experiencing, and it's a it's a pretty trippy montage. I sent that to you earlier. I was wondering if you yeah, saw. Yeah, I did watch yeah. some of it. Yes. And what they're doing though is he has to place his hands on his on the sensors, and they're getting emotional responses to, you know, nice images: mom, dad, country, love, and then the images start to conflict with the words on the screen. And basically, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find people who are suitable to become assassins. And so yeah. In any case, that he is mom. Well, <laughs> they want to see how bad we're going to feel about this. Yeah. What can we get you to do now? This sounds a lot like focus groups. <laughs> in a, well, no, they've done that. Where uh, you have a no- in a focus group, you'll have a knob. No, I know. Believe me, exactly. I edited a commercial. Exactly. You can't really go to these stupid things. So when you like something, you turn them up higher or lower. I, I like to call them the death of creativity. <laughs> Because it's all just metrics. Yeah, I also called them yeah. another thing that's a word I can't say. It wasn't <laughs> right. focus. Just use yeah, your imagination. Of course. Of it had course. a U in it. Right. Well, anyway, that was a, that's a real device. And so what I'm kind of... Oh, another thing, uh, Samuel Renshaw, it was an American psychologist, and he used it to train sailors in World War II to be able to, to quickly identify aircraft if they were friend or foe just by an outline. So these things, were, it's, it's like a slide, it's like you're looking into a slide projector and these different images are coming up rapidly. And uh, apparently you can be trained to recognize, you know, words, but also images and outlines. It's a way of rapid learning. And so he, and he had an interesting thing. He's uh, Samuel Renshaw saying that uh, we only probably use maybe a fraction, a fifth of our brains that we could be using. So he thought this was a way of opening this up. So speaking of the war and, and, and go, getting crazier, because there's, there's two routes here. One, the very origins of what I'm about to talk about, this subject, is a little crazy. But then it gets very real because, Scott, this really happened. And there's been podcasts about it. One of my favorites that I first, uh, one of the first places I heard about it, the Stuff You Should Know guys did a, did a good, probably a, a good summation of it. I'm not going to do that here because really this is deserving of its own episode. Okay. And I've done so much research on this, which I'm not going to use now. Right. I don't want it to go to waste. But what the subject is, is MK Ultra. Yes. Have you heard about it? Oh, I, absolutely. Well, okay. that one's famous, even to somebody like me. Well, yeah, no. But the thing is, is that a lot of people don't know about it, but had heard about it. I don't it. know what it exactly is. Right. I just know it's nefarious. Briefly, I'm just going to give a very basic overview because I don't want to spoil this for a future episode, but I've done so much. Uh, I, as I said, I did, I did a lot of research here, and it is a crazy big story. And essentially, in a, in a nutshell, Kurzgesagt, Kurzgesagt, whatever, the, I can't remember. <laughs> I, I haven't said it in a long time. MKUltra was a secret and illegal CIA program to find drugs or psychological methodologies that would surreptitiously control the minds and actions of either enemy agents under for torture or interrogation or to influence leaders of foreign countries or in a lot of cases to find out what would happen to the average Joe if you gave him a, a buttload of LSD and without them knowing. Right. I can't even imagine because you would, you would just think your brain's coming unglued, that you were going crazy. Well, they wanted to find out. So unlike Polybius, where... It's very vague, and there's a couple of stories here and there. This really happened. There are people that experienced it, unlike Polybius, that can come forward and said, no, no, this happened to me. I worked at the CIA at the time, and this is what was going on. And there are documents 
official government documents. And of course, like, like the CIA, you have to write a proposal, you write research results, there's money being spent, there's financial documents. It was a very large effort, very expensive at the time, consisting of, uh, of at least 80 institutions being involved and 185 private researchers in cooperation with the CIA through, uh, they would set up front companies. And it was universities, hospitals, colleges, prisons, pharmaceutical companies, where they would come in as a as a front company, and so well, we want to do, we want you to do this testing. I think only the people at the very highest levels knew that there was a CIA involvement, and a lot of them did not either. They just they just went along with it. So really, the idea uh, started in World War II, and of course, here here's the if you if you crank back the meter to the left, here's where it gets kind of nutty because there are conspiracy researchers who believe this may have started with Hitler's inner circle and their love of the occult and Hitler's love of the occult and crazy stuff like that. Illuminati, new world order. Okay. That's the, (laughs) that's the, that's the crazy part, if you want to say, and then you crank the needle to the right or going into actual history. It starts with operation paperclip, which we had mentioned before, I think the Fermi paradox, I can't remember which one. uh, Yeah. Basically it was an operation. The war is ending they know that there are a lot of German scientists that were working on the V2 rocket, the atomic bomb, a lot of advanced stuff. Well, the Americans want that information, and they especially want it before the Russians get it. And of course, the Russians want it too. They had their own operation to round up as many German scientists floating around and trying to escape as they could. So that was Operation Paperclip. But I was more familiar with the uh, the rocket scientists, you know, the uh, von Braun's and and getting those guys. Well, that's not all the Germans were researching. They were also researching mind control techniques, interrogation techniques. Essentially, all these government agencies, what they're looking for is the perfect truth serum, unlike sodium pentothal, which I think makes you loopy and you might give up some stuff if you're prone to anyway, but it's not perfect. Right. Okay. It's not dependable. So they're looking for a, a one-all solution here that's going to really just open up the floodgates. You're going to spill your guts. They'll get all the information out of you that they want before they take you out behind the shed and shoot you. So they didn't really know much about LSD at the time and its psychoactive properties. That was synthesized by Albert Hoffman in the late 30s. But basically what they had was mescaline. So they're they're gassing prisoners up with all kinds of psychoactive drugs, and I'm sure probably their own uh, military as well, uh, to find out what's going to happen, how can we get people to confess and uh, give up their secrets. Well, the Americans did not prosecute them. Some of these guys were involved in war crimes. And the other one that you don't know about, maybe not so much, but I think everyone should. And I encourage people to go read this. I'm not going to describe it here because it's so awful and horrific. It's just, it's not appropriate for the show at this point. We may do something later on it. But the Japanese were also doing experimentations. Unit 731. Unit 731. And we'll have a link to that. And and I think it's something yeah, it's... that people should go look because it's, I mean, we're talking horror movie yeah, it was kind awful. of things. Really, really awful stuff. However, the American position, the military position, and in fact, even MacArthur at the time wrote a letter saying that, you know what, if we kind of say that we're not going to prosecute them, they might give up even more secrets. General Ishii, who was running the place, may have given up more names or more data. They wanted this data because they knew that this wasn't over. So as the Cold War developed, they heard the Russians were working on these kind of techniques. The Chinese were, and you've heard of Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. That was a real fear. There's a lot of paranoia going on. There's a lot of paranoia 
at the CIA itself. By just in a nutshell, for people that aren't familiar with the idea of the Manchurian candidate, this is like an assassin who's been brainwashed and a trigger word right. a trigger word will set them off to you know, partake in some nefarious tasks such as right. they've know, been, shoot the president. Exactly. They've been they've been programmed. So anyway, programmed. at some it's yes. right. And it's it's about brainwashing. That's where MK they think might originate in that it's uh mind controller, which is the German word for control, a nod to the ger- where where it originated with the Germans probably. And then Ultra is a designation for uh, during World War II for the highest classified uh, military secrets. So very highly classified documents would be classified as ultra. So a point there, though, is that Polybius was a video game. I could see the project being called Project Polybius for mm-hmm. some, from some internal reason. Somebody there was, you know, it has to do with his cryptography. I can't see the video game being called you know, Polybius. It's just not very exciting and kind of far-fetched. So there were a lot of other crazy experiments going on. There was Operation Midnight Climax. That was the CIA operating, turning uh, safe houses in the uh, San Francisco area into brothels, dosing Johns with LSD, and then filming them through a one-way mirror to see what would happen. Yeah. There's MK Search. There's MK Naomi. This all started with Project Bluebird, and I don't know why it was called that, but that turns into Project Artichoke, named after a New York City criminal, <laughs> the Artichoke King. These are all, Some of these are tongue-in-cheek. Some of these have meaning internally. Some of these are pretty obvious meanings. But in our research here for this story, we could find no connection to Polybius. So that's a red flag for me there. Yeah. Not that there has to be – it has to be obvious to me. But generally, there is some, some kind of connection that can be made. Right. We uh, couldn't – yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm going no, to right. so, save uh, my points for in a minute. Okay. So as I'm getting to this, as I'm wrapping this up, basically what I'm saying is that they did testing on people. And these are awful experiments. Come on, let's face it. I mean, they were dosing each other. You know, the other CIA operatives were having like, you know, wild cocktail mixers where they were just, I think for a gag, nobody really knew what the the long-term effects of LSD were. I mean, it wears off at probably 8 to 10 to 12 hours, but they were, they didn't know much about it. And so they were testing everybody, soldiers, as one um, officer said, uh, connected with it, it was people who could not fight back. That's another point I make. I guess I'm getting to my conclusions here, but basically the point is it doesn't fit the testing model. If you read these, how these tests and experiments went, you dose these guys, but you have them in a padded room, and then for the next eight hours you make notes. You, you film them because you, you, don't send, you don't have them play the game, which is actually the game itself is the LSD here. Mm-hmm. If Polybius is real, if that's the test, yes, they can have a, a camera in there facing you and record your reactions. But all the other data is you going home to your you know, your parents' house you can't be and watched. freaking out. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that's a, big, that's a big red flag to me as far as not being a real experiment or not fitting that model. Right. Is that most of your subject's data is being lost. And, also, it's kids. You know, it's kids. It's kids. And it's random kids exactly. that would come into an arcade. I, this is one of the first things I, I mentioned to you is that... Um, it doesn't make sense because guess what? Kids have parents and parents, you imagine yourself as a, as a father, your kid's freaking out after you came to the arcade. Yeah, you you want answers. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to not stop until you find out what is wrong. What happened? Who did this? Right. And they don't want that. It's a volatile situation. Right. And it is in terms of an experiment, there's no control. It, it, precisely. Yeah. It, right. There's no science. So it control. doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in that you wouldn't risk that amount of exposure because all the other experiments they were doing, again, it was it was the lower rungs of society, the weaker people they thought, prostitutes, minorities. 
service members who volunteered, and there were some volunteers who did that, but they did some horrible things. I mean, there, uh, there were some people, in, uh, I think in Kentucky, some mental patients, that they had dosed for 77 days in a, in a row or mm, more. Geez. They had put one doctor, Ka- Dr. Cameron, I just want to check that name before you have to take that out. Sorry. Yeah, Dr. Ewan Cameron. People came into a clinic that he had in uh, Montreal at uh, McGill University, I think, or or uh, the, the clinic there it became known as the brain butchery. People came in with mild neurotic kind of uh, complaints. He did stuff like put people into a coma and play loops over and over again. Basically, he wanted to erase your personality and your identity and your memory and start fresh. So like you could maybe program a robotic soldier Wow. I mean, just the, the most horrible, ghastly stuff. Yeah. Not as bad, of course, as what happened with the Nazis and the Japanese. Yeah. But that's where he got the ideas. He worked uh, with the OSS during the war, and he was interested. Uh, he became fascinated by what the Germans were doing. And so the OSS became – that was a predecessor to the CIA. And wrapping this up, for me, it doesn't seem like a real experiment, like something that they would do, something like they actually did. Okay, plus, if you look at the timeline – it had really wound down because what due to the Watergate hullabaloo, then CIA director Richard Helms ordered all MK Ultra files destroyed. Okay, because he's, he doesn't want to get caught with these things, and they did. So in nineteen, yeah, in nineteen, and I think the at the end of the year in nineteen seventy four and into seventy five, the Frank Church Commission he was the he was the chairman of it basically started looking into all the uh, nasty dealings that the CIA were involved with. They only had a few documents to go on, which were financial, that survived. However, because a lot of the documents survived, though, the purge, because they ended up being misfiled in another records-keeping location that was not normally used. So now there's around 20,000 documents. Now, most of these documents are just about the the business dealings, you know, the, the financial dealings, what money went there to pay for what. They don't really describe the experiments themselves, but there's a lot of people who went through these who were uh, interviewed and testified. So they know what went on in a vague, in a, in a very general sense. But the, the point is here is that that is real. There's court records, there's documents. Polybius, not so much. So in conclusion, I will say, though, it doesn't hold water for me as being a secret government experiment on America's kids. Because, again, it just doesn't fit the model of what was actually done. So there you go. This story is, for me, it's a story worth telling because it's got, it's got legs like no urban legend I've ever seen. There's so many people that are so interested in it, and it just keeps going and going. In fact, there's a rumor that in 2011, a Polybius cabinet was found in a storage unit in Portland. Oh, that, yeah, I did read that. Yeah. And then it disappeared. Or, uh, you know, well, somebody you was going to sell it on eBay. No pictures. No. You know, it it just keeps going and going and going. It has a lot of convincing details and anecdotes, but it has a lot of details that aren't convincing. Right. And we don't always get to draw conclusions. We got a lot. There's a lot of mysteries where when it's over, you have to live with the question. Well, when, the, we, when we do this show. Exactly. Right? And you know what? Like all the other good legends, there's really no way to disprove it either. Right. I but, mean, not fully, but... But I'm, yeah. what I'm going to say yeah. is I feel as, as as strongly about this as I did when we did the Amelia Earhart series right. and we made our conclusion there. I'm going to go on the record and say that I believe that Polybius is a hoax. Yes. Yeah. Actually, excuse me. It's not a hoax. I shouldn't have said hoax. Right. I think it's an urban legend that it evolved from a, a prank and it just took on a life of its own. It snowballed right. culturally in a way... 
that no one could have ever expected. Like, I don't think the person, like, I don't think Yogi or whoever that <laughs> first posted <laughs> yeah, the right. first thing about it right. ever dreamed that that little posting right. would evolve into what the Polybius story is today with this game showing up on The Simpsons right. and, you know, being all over the place and talked about for you know, 20, 30 years on, online. Right, but Brian Denning made a good point, though, and others have as well, and we, we kind of came to these conclusions also ourselves, is that it there are elements of it which sound very plausible and real. Kids kids did freak out. The kid who tried to break the asteroids record. What, what did he play, right. 38 hours, 23, I can't remember what it was. It was between 20 and 38 hours in a row. He drank so many Cokes, he got a stomach and he had to bow out. Yep. And plus his head was hurting. At the same time, I think on the same day, there was another kid who did suffer a migraine brought on by playing Tempest. Right, which he had never gotten before. Yeah. And there was another – there was four kids close together. There was another one who had a heart attack while right. trying to beat a, the high score on Berserk. Right. And then a few weeks later, another – or months maybe, yeah. another kid – same thing, playing Berserk, had a heart attack, and died. Well, that's not such a flashing game. <laughs> I played that one. No. But, but I but, get it. Because, you know what? But it's, it's probably starting to freak people out. It's All to these freak elements out. are coming together. You're, you're getting this stew right. for this story that just becomes, in a lot of ways, to me, the perfect urban legend. Well, it's, it's certainly growing into that. One other thing that I can't remember if we mentioned or not, but I think it's important, is that around this time, there were some shady arcade owners who were trying to change the games to be monetized. That's right. Where, People were gambling yeah. with games. So there yes. were federal agents, local police law enforcement. In Portland, specifically. In, yeah, yeah. Raiding these places. Because what would happen is that the guys would modify the games that I think you had a counter uh, on the back of these machines. And I also vaguely heard about this as well. There'd be a, a, a counter on the uh, stuck to the back of the machine, tapped into... The person who got the high score would be able to get a little bit of a payout, which would, of course, increase sales of people trying to get this high score, increases more cash for the arcade owner. So it's gambling. Now, yeah. in the in the old, in a generation prior to that, I, I believe some of the mob were trying to rig pinball machines to also pay out or be used for gambling. The feds were looking at, into that as well. So again, here's another element to a, a great story, as you say. You have kids passing out, really, yes. getting sick. Uh, people getting headaches just in general because they're playing these so long. You have G-men who aren't answering a lot of questions poking around or maybe come and actually do raid a couple of machines yeah. and taking the backs off of them to check for these counters. That's right. So there you go. What does that look like? Well, uh, hey, you know, kids, uh, you know, at least we did at the time. You start speculating and you want the best and crazy, most crazy story you can think of. Well, it's a government conspiracy. <laughs> That's going to wrap it up for tonight. Yes, it is. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in about two weeks with a new show. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to our head researcher, Tess Feifel. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>